0: Please open your Bibles now to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. If you're new to Manoah Community Church, we have been going verse by verse through the book of Acts in a preaching series called Life on Mission. We took the last three weeks off, but we got two more sermons here in Acts chapter 20 before we launch into our Advent series, The Christmas Carols. And so we're wrapping up a brief mini-series inside of this where we're looking at Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. Now, I shared three or four weeks ago, whenever I preached last on this, we we did a message on the example of the life of Paul. And this is the second of these three sermons here. This is one sermon that he preaches, and the only sermon in the book of Acts where Paul addresses Christians. Every other sermon is evangelistic, is an apologetic defense of the faith, if you will. This is the one. This is the one where he calls the Christian leaders together and tells them how to live, tells them about his example, tells us how to lead. And though there's some great leadership principles in this passage, we're looking at it in how it applies to all of us in our lives as well. Now I've titled today's message, Invaluably Precious, because Paul talks about how precious the gospel is in this next section that we're going to look at, verses 22 to 27, now it's actually by way of contrast, in a way you wouldn't think, because he says that he does not count his life of any value or precious in contrast to the gospel, which is why Caleb, when he read that passage out of 2 Corinthians chapter four, Paul describes our lives like we're a jar. We're this jar, this clay jar that has a special treasure inside, namely the gospel, that our lives are like this jar that holds something so glorious inside. And so we're going to unpack these next couple verses and look at what makes the gospel so invaluably precious. But to get us started, I do want to backpedal a little bit just to get the rest of the context, especially if you're newer to Manoah. We're going to begin in verse 17, which I've already preached. And then we'll pick it up in verse Uh, 22, which is where I'm preaching, 22 to 27 today. I just want to give you some of the context there, read it together, and then we'll pray for our sermon. So follow along, chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now picking up our passage for today. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem Constrained by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God, invaluably precious, let's pray. Well, Father God, as we pause now to open your word, to seek you in your word, inspired by your spirit, spoken through the Apostle 2,000 years ago, we pray that these words would ripple off the pages and through this room and into our ears and into our hearts. And bring about the fruit and bring about the change and bring about the transformation that you desire in our lives through the gospel. We thank you for how precious your gospel is. We thank you for how invaluable it is, Lord. And as we consider our own lives next to the gospel, Lord, may we see the true treasure that has been handed to each one of us who trust in Jesus Christ. And may that treasure be all the more glorious and add all the more value to our lives on this side of eternity and unto eternal life, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been said, the most precious thing in life is life itself. The most precious thing in life is life itself. And that is a truism that rings true for most of us, myself included, and walking through some of the scary stuff with my wife this last week, saying the most important thing is our health, is our life on this side of eternity which is all the more shocking and jarring when we bump into the Apostle Paul's words here in verse 24, when he describes his life, an accounting of his life, and says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. You would think your life to yourself is the most precious thing, because if you don't have your life game over there's nothing else to value there's nothing else to cling on to obviously as believers we believe unto eternal life but on this side of eternity life is everything life is everything so what is paul saying here saying my life isn't valuable my life isn't precious to me well he's not saying it as an absolute like my my life is worthless I just wish I were dead. We know that's not true of the Apostle Paul. In fact, earlier when a plot was made against him as he was about to hop on a ship to kill him, he decided not to hop onto that ship. So clearly, Paul does value his life. It is precious to him, but not when he considers the calling on his life, not when he puts it next to something else. By way of contrast, when he puts his life next to the gospel, it puts his life into perspective. So he says, my life has no value, it's not precious, unless it accomplishes the purpose that God has placed in my life, namely to proclaim the gospel. He says in verse 24, that I may finish the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel. He says, My life versus the gospel, the gospel wins every time. My life exists for the gospel, that jars of clay. I am the jar of clay. The gospel is the treasure, not the other way around. And so, the question I want to answer in today's sermon is what makes the gospel so invaluably precious? And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a diamond. Many of the ladies here who are married in the room have a nice sparkly diamond on their engagement ring, right, that you were handed by the man who proposed to you. And when, men, we went to go pick that out, we were, we were schooled in the value of diamonds and what makes them so precious. And we were given the four C's, guys. Do you remember this? The four C's of a diamond is the cut, the color, the clarity, and the carrot, Right? You put those together, and the better that they are, the more invaluable, the more precious the diamond becomes. Well, Paul takes us on a little tour of the gospel in the next few verses where he turns this diamond for us and shows us the different refractions and dazzles us with the glory of the gospel. And not with the four C's, but I'm going to call this the four D's, or excuse me, the four G's of the gospel. So if you're taking notes, These are the four G's of what makes the gospel so invaluably precious. And each G is God. But the precious gospel first spreads God's grace. So, the first thing that makes the gospel so invaluably precious is that the precious gospel spreads God's grace. So he says again in verse 24, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. What is that ministry, Paul? To testify to the gospel. Listen to this. Of the grace of God. The gospel of the grace of God. The gospel spreads God's grace. Gospel, if you're new to Christianity or the faith, is not simply Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, though we call those the Gospels. The gospel becomes shorthand in your Bible for the good news about Jesus. The life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, all the saving person and work of Christ is summed up in that gospel. And so sometimes we hear about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, but Paul doesn't say the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he says the Lord Jesus gave me this gospel to testify to. He says the gospel of God's grace. And so the first D G, if we will, in this diamond is God's grace is sparkling. It is dazzling. It is shimmering in the gospel. Now, going back to our diamond illustration here, you remember when the guy at the the store sold you that diamond, men? They always put it on a black velvet thing, right? You know, like some sort of black thing, and then the light hit it, Because the black made it sparkle all the more. Once you put it against something dark, you saw how glorious it was. And Paul, more than anybody else, understand how beautiful God's grace is, the gospel of God's grace, because he was not only a recipient of a calling into ministry to spread God's grace, he was an object of God's grace himself. The darkness or the blackness is the bad news that the good news lays on top of. The bad news is that we are sinners. The bad news is that we are under the wrath of God. The bad news is that there is a devil and he controls a lot of hearts in this world, including used to be the Apostle Paul's. The bad news is that we're not good people on our way destined to heaven through our good works. That's not true. It's that we're sinners destined to destruction. And Paul, before Jesus saved him, he was persecuting the church. One of the first Christian martyrs, Paul contributed in his death. When they stoned him, they laid the garments at his feet. He was self-righteous. He was a racist. He thought of himself as more elite than all other people, nationalities, cultures, tribe, from the tribe of Benjamin. He looked at his pedigree. He looked at his education. He was trained at the best school in Jerusalem by the best teacher, Gamaliel. All of these things, he put all of his confidence in himself, in his flesh, in his works, in his performance. You know, Jesus is often duking it out with the Pharisees in the gospel, right? Well, Paul was a Pharisee, and he says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning you think that they were self-righteous? I got them all schooled. I was like, I was the Pharisee of Pharisees, and I went to the Pharisee school under Gamaliel. That is who Paul was, and he put all of his confidence in that identity, all of his confidence in himself, all of his confidence in his performance, his performance, and what he could do for God, until... He encountered the grace of God until Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus with blinding light just to show him how dark his heart really was. And it wasn't until he was blinded that his eyes were finally open to see the grace of God. And later he writes biographically autobiographically at all of this sin and all of this self-righteousness and all of these works that he trusted in and he says i counted all his rubbish i counted all his dung compared to the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord and he is the apostle of the grace of god where he says it is the grace of god that saves us for we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What makes the gospel so glorious? When he holds his life, he says, my life, compared to the grace of God, it's nothing. The gospel is everything. God's grace and getting it out there, just like I needed the grace of God. The world needs the grace of God. In my life, this jar exists to hold this treasure, the grace of God, and to bestow the grace of God upon the entire world. You know, in the nature of grace, before we go to our second point, is that it's free. Paul uses that language in Romans. For example, Romans 4, he says the free grace of God. So it's not something you earn. It's not something you deserve. It's not something that you go to church enough, take communion enough, all these things, and somehow you merit God's grace. No, it's given to you as a free gift through faith. So just like my kids were getting eager for Christmas and they have the list of all the things that they want for Christmas, right? And they put it up on the fridge for us to see. And they're not expecting to pay for it. (laughs) But they know it's not free. <laughs> it's free to them, but it costs somebody else some buka bucks to pull off. Go back to that engagement ring, my sisters, sparkling on your hand. That was a free gift, wasn't it? It was not cheap. And when you think about the grace of God, it is free to you, but it was not cheap. It costs God everything to purchase this free grace for you, which is what makes it so beautiful and invaluable. I don't want to preach my verses from next week, but I do want to grab verse 28. Just briefly look at this. Verse 28, pay careful attention, Paul tells these elders, of yourself and to all the flock of God in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained, look at this, with his own blood. The price that God paid to grant you his free grace was his own blood his own blood. And we don't normally say it that way. Paul, it almost catches you. The the blood of his own son. Well, yeah, somehow in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Paul feels comfortable here to say it costs the blood of God to buy your freedom. It costs the blood of God to buy this precious gem for you. It costs God, everything, everything in heaven, he put on flesh and died for you, shed his blood to redeem you so that you might be a recipient of this free grace. Free grace, but not cheap, not cheap at all. The most priceless gift was ever paid, which makes all the more sense why Paul would say my life versus God's blood no contest. The gospel is invaluably precious because the gospel spreads God's grace. Secondly, the second G as we turn this diamond, not only is the precious gospel spreading God's grace, but the precious gospel spreads God's kingdom. Spreads God's kingdom, verse 25. So he says, my life is not of any value, because I need to finish testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And now behold, he says, verse 25, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, there it is, will see my face again. Now Paul is on a journey, if you're new to the book of Acts, he's traveling to and Lord willing Through Jerusalem and ultimately to Rome, which is where the book of Acts ends. The Holy Spirit has compelled him, constrained him to go back to Jerusalem to take a gift that he's been collecting for the church from all the churches to them to help the poor there and to alleviate suffering because of a famine. And then ultimately, he wants to go to Rome, the epicenter of influence in that ancient world, to take the gospel. And he tells them, I'm not going to see your face again. So later they will be crying over this. But he says, it's okay. My life is not that important as long as I finish this message of spreading the gospel of the grace of God. Because I went around you and I was spreading this gospel. And he changes the phraseology here from the message of grace to a message of the kingdom. Do you see that? To testify to the kingdom, proclaiming the kingdom, you won't see my face again. So, what are you proclaiming, Paul? Are you proclaiming the gospel? Are you proclaiming grace? Are you proclaiming the kingdom? Yes. All of the above. Because as we turn this diamond. One way to think about the gospel. Is how it ushers you into the free grace of God. The next way we look at the gospel. Is to think about how it brings about. And inaugurates the kingdom of God. Into the world. And into your life. You can't help but reading Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And Jesus is often teaching about the kingdom of God. Or the kingdom of heaven. And the name Jesus Christ Christ is a title for the king, the anointed one over God's kingdom. And so Christianity has not only a message about how we get to go to heaven one day and have all of our sins forgiven, but also how God's rule and God's reign is reestablished here on the earth through his subjects, citizens of the kingdom, and how we enter into his kingdom with Jesus Christ as our king. And Paul knows where he fits on the org chart, because though he is the apostle to the Gentiles, he is not the king of the church. Amen? There is only one king of the church, and his name is Jesus Christ. He says, my life versus the king. Hands down, the king wins every time, and my life is a subject in service of the king and of the kingdom, which is why I went around proclaiming the kingdom. The message of Jesus about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and the message of Paul are not two different messages. They are the same. Paul is reiterating this message of the kingdom. And Jesus, when he taught us about the kingdom to help us get our mind wrapped around the nature of it and the value of it, often taught us in parables. So I want to show you one of those parables before we move on to our third point, to see the value, once again, of the gospel, the value of the kingdom. This comes out of Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom, do you see it? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Paul and Jesus are on the same page here, aren't they? The great value of the gospel, the great value of the kingdom. Jesus tells us it's like a treasure. It's like a pearl of great price. And when people find that treasure, you know what they do? They give up everything that they have to buy that treasure. They want the field because they get the treasure to get that pearl. And they're operating there in their own self-interest, aren't they? They're not giving up a million dollars to get five bucks. Just the other way around. Why do you want that field? None of your business. (laughs) I got the treasure. (laughs) I got the pearl. Priceless. That's what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like in our lives and in the world. It is priceless. And we want to get in on it. In 1848... The California Gold Rush began. There was a man by the name of James Marshall. He was uh, in a sawmill and discovered some flecks shining in the water. Realized that there was gold, and the gold rush began. People from not only all over the United States or what was becoming this nation as it was forming, traveling all the way to the West, but even from other nations hopped on boats and over 300,000 people rushed to what ultimately became the state of California because they all wanted to get in on this treasure that was discovered, namely the gold. They all rushed there. What is now worth billions of dollars was discovered in California. It was valuable. It was precious. It was worth giving up everything that they had to go after it. Jesus here in this parable, is, and Paul himself, talking about treasure, talking about value, says, if you don't think that this is important, let me give you a story just to see what you are passing up here. This is the most precious thing. You should give everything up for this, and when you get it, you should not be like, ah, oh, Think now I have to live for God. Oh, he's gonna rule and reign in my life. Now his presence and glory are gonna spread around. No, this is the greatest gold rush ever. And Jesus inaugurates that, gives us the, the, the clue. He says, go give it all up, and you will have great joy now and forever. And Paul could say that and not fake it. Not paste over a spiritual Christianese bumper sticker on top of it. I should say it because it's the right thing to say. No, supernaturally in his soul, this has become his greatest delight and treasure. And he says, my life versus the treasure of the kingdom. Hands down, the gospel of the kingdom wins every time. Now, before we go to our third point, I do want to say there is a paradox here. And here's the paradox. Paul says that he does not consider his life of any value nor precious to himself. And at first blush, you could walk away with what I call miserable worm Christianity, right? It's like, I am dirt. But at least God's glorious, right? I am worthless. But I'm cool with that because God's worth a lot. And there's a truth to that, but listen. Listen. If you only see that side of Paul's perspective. It's my nephews right there. I love you, brothers. (laughs) All right. If you only see that side of this, this is Paul's perspective because he sees the glory of God. But here's the beauty of the gospel, brothers and sisters. You, though Paul doesn't consider his life precious to himself, God does consider your life precious to him. He wouldn't have shed his own blood to buy you if he didn't want to, right? We don't buy anything that's not valuable to us, do we? And so we see not only the glory of God, which is first and prominent, but also how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Because that parable of the kingdom, yes, we give it all to get God. But if you just tilt your head a little bit, you see another side of that, which is God gave it all to get you. And that is the paradox of the kingdom because we don't think highly of ourselves, nor should we. But God in the mystery of his incalculable grace before the world began with all of your sin already in his mind said I will still ransom Joe and Mike and Susan and Sally unto myself and I will make them not only subjects of the kingdom I will make them into my very sons and daughters with all of my love I will lavish it upon them despite the rebellion grace upon grace poured out by the king himself to purchase you. So when you finish today's sermon and leave from this place, yes, the gospel is invaluably precious. Yes, we don't account our lies and puff ourselves up, but I would not want you to leave from this place thinking that God doesn't think you're precious. Because the paradox of the gospel is that we don't have an accounting of our lives is precious in the mystery of God's grace. You're so precious to him that he shed his blood to purchase you unto himself. Amen? Thirdly, the precious gospel spreads not only God's grace and God's kingdom, but thirdly, God's salvation. Verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Now, Paul is continuing his thought, right? He says, I got to finish the gospel. That's what's most precious. That's what's most valuable here. Then he goes on to talk about the kingdom, that he's not going to see them again, even though he's proclaiming the kingdom. And then he goes to this verse where at first blush, you're like, now we're talking about blood and he's innocent of the blood of all of them. Like, (laughs) why would Paul be guilty of the blood of all of them? Well, if you've been in this series for a while, this is not the first time Paul has grabbed this language of being innocent of other people's blood. He pulled this out in Acts chapter 18 as well in Ephesus, where he says, forget it, I'm innocent of the blood of all of you, people who rejected the gospel, and I'm moving on. He shakes the dust and moves on. He's pulling this out of the prophet Ezekiel. And the prophet Ezekiel spoke to the ministers, if you will, but by extension really to all believers who have a knowledge of the truth, who are to keep watch over the world and see danger coming. And this is what Ezekiel, through God speaking to and through him, said to these watchmen. He said, listen, I've set you up as a watchman. If you see the sword coming and you blow the horn and people don't respond and don't get out of danger's way, you're innocent. You did your job. You warned them. You served as a faithful watchman. But if you see the sword coming, if you see danger coming, and you don't sound the alarm, you're guilty of their blood. You're guilty of their blood because you didn't warn them of the danger. And Paul says, I'm innocent. I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. We'll look at the fourth point of why it is proclamation of the message. But here's the point and he's talking about blood, and that there's a warning, and that there's a danger that needs to be heralded and sounded. In the gospel, the gospel is good news. Amen? The gospel is the good news of God's grace. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news of the kingdom. The gospel is the good news about heaven, that we get to go to heaven. But all of these good news, the gospel is the good news about the forgiveness of our sins. There's an opposite side to that coin. The good news implies that there's a bad news that we need to be saved from, right? If I said, sweet, I'm saved. Somebody once asked R.C. Sproul, he was a young evangelist, didn't know he was talking to a theologian. He said, sir, are you saved? And R.C. Sproul, he's, a, he's now with the Lord, but he's a great theologian. He said, in his crotchety old way, like, saved from what? And the young evangelist was shook up, I don't know, he kind of ran away. We are saved, which is good news, but we are saved because there was danger coming. There is an enemy of our soul, the devil, and he is real, and he holds people captive, including us at one point. Darkness is real, which is why we need the light of Christ. We need to be saved from our sins because we're sinners. We need to be saved unto eternal life because eternal death is looming over us. We need to be saved to heaven because hell is a real place where we will go If Jesus doesn't become our savior. And so he says here. Talking about the blood. This is why this is so important. This is why my life on this side of eternity. Is not so precious. Compared to this message. Because my life exists. To sound the alarm. To get more people saved. And regardless of how they respond. Brothers and sisters. It is not your job to convert anybody. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. But it is our job to sound the alarm. And it is our job to point people to the Savior of the world and the free grace of God. And Paul can say with all integrity, I have done it. I have done the job of a watchman. I have proclaimed God's glorious salvation that you can be saved, that your blood can be atoned for. And I think it's so interesting here that he talks about how he is innocent of their blood. But in the end, all of us stand as creatures created by God with innocent or with guilty blood on our hands. And yet, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood. Of Jesus. That the priceless blood that was paid was to cancel out your blood guilt. And Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that you could be innocent once again. And so we see in this message a message of free grace that it's a gift. We see in this message that is the message of God as your king and the kingdom of God. We see in this glorious message that is so precious, so invaluable that eternal deliverance, eternal salvation, eternal rescue is purchased that our blood would be redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And fourthly and finally, the precious gospel also spreads God's counsel. God's grace, God's kingdom, God's salvation, and finally, God's counsel, which is where we'll end on verse 27 for today. Let me back up to 26. I, I testify to this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. Why? For, that connects the prior verse, this is why I am innocent. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Were you proclaiming the gospel of God or the counsel of God? Yes. The kingdom of God? Yes. The grace of God? Yes. All of the above. As we turn this diamond on its last angle from this text, I want to say clearly that the gospel has many more angles. We're just limiting our refractions of light to this passage. Paul now tells us that it is not only the grace of God revealed in the gospel, not only the salvation in the kingdom of God, but finally the counsel of God for verse 27. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, God's counsel. That phrase, I did not shrink, is a, a phraseology that Paul uses often. Look again at verse 20. Just go up there, how I did not shrink. Do you see that? From declaring to you anything that was profitable. Why is he describing as proclaiming God's counsel as something that he did not shrink from, right? I did not shrink from you in declaring that. I think this is why. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we have the counsel of God, we have the revelation of God, we have the word of God, and there's a temptation to shrink To fall back from declaring the counsel of God. And not just listen to this. The counsel of God. But you see the word he puts in front of it? The full counsel of God, right? I'm always suspicious when I go to a service and all of a sudden the minister chops off the verse at the hard part. (laughs) You're like, oh, they just pulled They kept all the, the fluffy, happy side of this. They took all... The rest of the stuff that was harder to process. There's a temptation in all of us, and I'm not exempt from this, <laughs> to want to proclaim the partial counsel of God. But what is so glorious about the Bible? What is so glorious about God is revealed in His Word. When He condescended, He gave us His sufficient Word, and now He declares us to believe the full counsel of God and to proclaim the full counsel of God, which, by the way, if you're new to Manoa, is also why we preach verse by verse through the Bible, because we're not allowed to dodge anything. (laughs) You're going to get the whole thing, and the Bible sets the agenda, not me, right? The Bible sets the agenda, because this is the counsel of God, and He is speaking to you, through his word, and we must never shrink back from declaring the full counsel of God. And what he says is, my life against the full revelation of God? This is priceless. Me? Not so much. Praise God, his words are now preserved in the counsel of God's word. But overall, he now packages, inspired by the spirit that we all not think so highly of ourselves in our counsel over against God's counsel. You know, he's been with the Ephesian church for about three years. He left and then came back. So, as I'm wrestling with this, did, did he teach every verse of the whole Bible? I, I, he'd really have to be booking it. I've been here for three years and we did John and Acts, right? And a couple of, <laughs> so, here's what I think he means by this. Jesus says the following, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, namely the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And Paul himself even warns people about getting lost in Jewish myths and genealogies. So I don't think he spent three years going through the genealogies and showing how that they're the true descendants of Benjamin, you know, that sort of thing. That would not be a a Christ-centered way of understanding his Bible. This is what I think he means by the full counsel of God. He taught them the whole Bible, and he showed and unlocked how the whole Bible pointed forward to Jesus Christ and found all of its connections in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because did you know this? That your whole Bible, including the Old Testament, points to Jesus. The whole thing. It's not like a The Old Testament, this only applies to Israel. New Testament, all about Jesus. No, the Old Testament is a shadow and the substance is Jesus. And so as we preach and as you sit under the whole counsel of God, may you always listen with ears to say, how does this point to the gospel? How does this point us to Jesus? How does this point us to the glory of God and the grace of God? Because the Old Testament saints were saved by the sacrifices, by mercy, by grace. God was in a covenant with them. They were the chosen people of God. All the same things we say of ourselves is applied to us because of them, not the other way around. If I lost you, that's okay. (laughs) But here's the point. God has extended his choice from Israel to every nation, tribe, and tongue. God has extended his mercy from the Old Testament church to people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so in the sacrifices of the lamb that was slain, now Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The temple, Jesus is the temple. The whole counsel of God points to Jesus Christ. What makes the gospel so precious that the gospel spreads God's counsel to the world? And I would say this, brothers and sisters, we now all read our whole Bible, the whole counsel, because the gospel brought us into the story of the whole Bible. Moses' story has become your story. God's deliverance of the Israelites has become your deliverance. That Paul now, as he goes to all the nations, says, our story is now your story. We are folded into a story of mercy, into a story of grace, into a story of God's love. And it comes to us through the invaluably precious good news of the gospel of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.